Now, when I say Romeo and Juliet, who comes to mind? Dana? Claire Danes. That's right, Claire Danes. Who else? Leonardo DiCaprio. Right? Who else? Well, you know, someone else was involved in that movie who in some ways is as famous as Leonardo DiCaprio. And his name's William Shakespeare. And some great movies are based on his plays. Hamlet. West Side Story. The Talented Mr. Ripley. Waterworld. Gladiator. Chocolat. <clears throat> Mr. Burke. As you know, my boyfriend drowned in a surfing accident. I don't think I can handle Romeo and Juliet right now, emotionally. Tanya Lani died a year ago. Well, sometimes it takes decades to recover from a tragedy like this. You only went out with him for two weeks. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash contrarianprime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O V N I O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, now we are recording for Contrarians Corner on Shakespeare in Love. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by Julio, here in the second episode of our awards season. The peaks and valleys of the awards given out in Hollywood. The... From the Razzies to the Oscars. Yeah, all that. An American Journey. <laughs> all that good stuff. We're here today to tackle a movie that has come up quite often on our podcast if you've listened to it uh, throughout the years and also just in conversation if you've ever talked to me about best picture winners and uh, the good the bad and the ugly of that and the um, proverbial minefield that comes along with that discussion the good the bad the ugly the delightful and the horrifying <laughs> the rompous uh, the discouraging the dark side of the the awards season uh yeah shakespeare in love that's what we're here to talk about today 1998 uh john madden's film not the uh, football announcer not to be mistaken common mistake uh with a 92 percent on rotten tomatoes this thing took the oscars by storm the year it was released i believe it won seven oscars in total uh we'll get a bit more into that in the uh, real talk portion of our podcast here with the first portion is contrarian's corner uh now being this is a 92 percent what we'll do here is uh, kind of break down the plot of the movie, but also, as we always like to say, rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine here in the first portion. So we will make a case of why those 92% are wrong. Why the Academy was wrong. And there will be more on that in the second part, <laughs> part of the podcast. But being that it's 92% means a whole hell of a lot of people liked it. 
Yes. Julio. 92% of critics. What were those? Fresh tomatoes. What were those juicy red tomatoes saying? Just, just a couple of quotes. Uh, we got Philip Kemp from Sight and Sound who said, a rich but satisfying plum pudding. All right. Is that like Shakespearean jargon? I think he was just trying to name a dish that would have been, you know, the bee's knees at the time. Now it would be, you know, a Big Mac because that's what we serve in the, uh, the, the White House. A rich and satisfying Big Mac. <laughs> a rich and satisfying smorgasbord of fast food. Uh, Karina Montgomery from Sin Arena says Shakespeare in Love is a delight on every level of movie going. This is why people go to the movies. I mean, you don't go to the movies very often, Alex. So maybe I that's don't. why you just can't. There needs to be more it. Shakespeare in Loves. Yeah. And finally, Richard Carlis from Time Magazine says, "Let the kids toy with the Rugrats and hold their Sandler high. Shakespeare in Love is a movie to please the rest of us." I always enjoy these quotes that feel the need to take a swipe at other movies. Especially of those that have nothing to do with the genre that this is. Adam Sandler versus Shakespeare. Rugrats. Like, <laughs> why would your why would you take your kids to see Shakespeare in Love in the first place? I I like the Sandler one because it's more ridiculous. It's just It's clearly the who who was that? What was his name? That was Richard Corlitz. That's a famed critic. Uh yeah, I'm sorry, Time magazine. Yeah, that's um fucking Clearly a case of just he's bitter that Adam Sandler made as much money as he did in 19... That would have been uh, the water boy. So he's probably angry that that made so much money, and so he wants and to... And that nobody was paying attention to Shakespeare in Love. Yeah. <laughs> why, why not just say Shakespeare in Love is good? I mean, if you're saying Shakespeare in Love is better than Adam Sandler movie, you're not setting the bar too high to begin with. So Who are you arguing with? Like, <laughs> who's your target audience with that? Him and his wife had had this pad right before he sat down to write that article. He's like, I'll fucking show her. And when the review came out and she read it, she just looked over and he was going, mm-hmm. Time Magazine, baby. <laughs> Where's your article? <laughs> All right. So Shakespeare in Love, based in 1953, is about William Shakespeare. <laughs> Young William Shakespeare. Despite this being, like, with full lines of his plays recited in this, nowhere in it does it give, like, credit, credit. to William Shakespeare. Well, that's because this movie, if you're to believe it's bullshit, it, this movie, one of its theses is, is that Shakespeare didn't come up with anything Touché. everybody's giving him ideas and lines every single line that's uttered is either something that his lover said or his producer said or something he overheard as he was walking down the street <laughs> at one point philip marlowe just tells him hey how about the plot is this and he just steals it yeah so that's fair he doesn't get a credit in a movie for that he's uh mark zuckerberg marlowe's why don't you call it drop the v <laughs> it's not the romeo and juliet <laughs> Just Romeo and Juliet. It's much cleaner. Uh, yeah, we're in London. William Shakespeare, played by I already forgot the Fines' first name, Joseph Fines, the the uh, dollar store Fines. Yeah, the affable younger brother of Ralph Fines, Rafe Fines, however you want to say it. Rafe Fines was playing Nazis and important stuff at this time <laughs> of his career. Yeah, bad dude and his brother who the fucking. Dollar General uh, Colin Farrell here. He's the Casey Affleck to uh, to Ray Fiennes, Ben Affleck. I, I don't know, man, because even Casey Affleck has, you know... <laughs> has a career. <laughs> yeah, and a not-so-punchable face. Um, a career, that's true, too, man. Yeah, Fiennes after this. It, was, Done. it might have been real poison <laughs> at the end. Uh, <laughs> so, Will Shakespeare is a playwright for Jer um, Jeffrey Rush who plays Henslow. Es essentially, Henslow is in debt to Tom Wilkinson, who runs the local theater, correct? Yes. Okay. 
So he's buddy-buddy with Shakespeare, and Shakespeare writes plays for him, so he needs him to write a new one. We go through this fucking, like, 20-minute opening of this to just figure out basically the gist of it is this guy needs a play. He needs it written by Shakespeare, but Shakespeare has writer's block. Yeah. Also, Jeffrey Rush is acting. Yes. He's With a capital A. He's just... C- T-I-N-G. Full on Looney Tunes in this one. Everybody has funny accents because they're not just doing British accents. They're doing British Shakespearean accents. Mm -hmm. But Jeffrey Rush is just like fucking Bugs Bunny playing the piano there. It's just (laughs) so over the top. uh, Really, really going for that. I mean, this is after he won the Oscar, right? He already won the Oscar for Shine. So he's got his eyes on, on another nomination at least. Did you ever find out? I asked you while we were watching. Did he get it? He did. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Mission accomplished. Yeah. Uh, we'll go again. I'm trying to save a bit of the Oscar talk for part D. Yeah, he's he's here to show the world. He's here to steal the show. His, uh, the he's opening, like, uh, he's like getting tortured. It's like a fucking Bond movie, and Tom <laughs> Wilkinson's the bad guy. Uh, Jeffrey Rush is unlike uh, Joseph Mines. I will not disappear after my one <laughs> breakout role. Yeah, similar to Leo and uh, Titanic. Uh, Joseph Fiennes is like the only one that didn't get nominated for something in this. I'm Destiny's Fool! <laughs> so he's got writer's block. He talks to, I, I assume, is supposed to be like a psychologist locally, something like that. A master of the occult slash psychologist. Yes, and he explains to him. He basically asks, you know, when's the last time you got your dick wet, buddy? And he's like, you know, that could be part of it. You need a flame, a muse. You need a, you know, something to get your fire going, something to start your desire. And he is on again, off again with uh, Rosaline, who's like... Somebody's... Not wife, right? It's... According to Wikipedia, the mistress of Richard Burbage. So that's the other guy, the guy that owns the the other theater. The rival theater. Yeah, but she was... In this small town where there's literal animal shit in the middle of the road, they still have two theaters, (laughs) goddammit. Step ahead from Denton? Hey. <laughs> Watch it now. Yeah, they they have their their AMC and their Regal <laughs> competing competing yeah. bids, but no woman is allowed in either of them uh, on stage at least. Hugh Fennyman is the name of Tom Wilkinson's character, but for all intents and purposes, he will just be Tom Wilkinson. On the other hand, the other guy, we don't know. Yeah. So he's just the other guy that owns the theater. Yes. That's exactly it. Uh, the current play that's in the works, according to Hornslow, is uh, Henslow, excuse me, is Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter, which doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well as, uh, say, Romeo and Juliet. That was just Shakespeare was, I don't know, going to the bathroom and he overheard the servant talking about pirates, and that's just why he came up with the title because that's all he has. Mm-hmm. Just making it up off the top of his head. That's that's what he does according to this movie. It's like a Muppets movie, but nowhere near as charming. Well, the entire thing in this movie also is just, listen, now you can talk to any serious writer, any actual writer, and they're going to tell you writer's block is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Writer's block just means that you are you just don't want to write and you yeah. come up with inane excuses, right? Oh, the muse didn't visit me or whatever. This movie celebrates that. It it actually encourages young writers. Look, even Shakespeare had writer's block. Yeah, all he needed to do was adultery fixed it. <laughs> Find a lady or a man. There's some confusion in as far as Shakespeare goes in the in the what he's looking for realm. But Viola de oh god these fucking names Viola de Les Lesseps. Gwyneth Paltrow. Thank you. I do I do have respect for British literature and these things, but I would not trust myself to be one to read read, you know, an actual Shakespearean play. So Gwyneth Paltrow 
is present. She's the daughter of a wealthy merchant. Uh, essentially, she's a big fan of Shakespeare. She's been to his plays numerous times and has the desire to act. It begins with the words. So uh, I guess it's the talk of the town because there's really not much going on. All that happens here is what happens at these two theaters. And, and the Even bar. the queen. Yeah. <laughs> the fucking queen of England, Judy Dench. And these plays must be pretty short because she's only around <laughs> this movie for six minutes total. Gwyneth Paltrow enjoys these plays, wants to act, wants to be in it. So has her uh, nurse uh, at her mansion or uh, palace basically gets in on it. She's kind of like her guardian angel throughout this. They, It's a nurse, right? Yeah, yeah. She calls her nurse. I don't know if she actually has a degree. Well... Uh, at this point in time, we learn that she's kind of there to help her out with her zany schemes throughout the movie. So that's the significance of bringing her up. But what she does is she helps bind her breasts and tie her hair up and places a wig and like a fucking um, Marx, Groucho Marx facial hair on her. And so she can go and audition for this play or so she can act in it because she auditions like just in like with a, a fucking on. Dick Tracy hat on. And Shakespeare's <laughs> fooled. Yeah. <laughs> what? She looks like Rose from Titanic. Like, she comes in and her hair is billowing out and she's wearing, like, a lavender dress and shit. And he's just like, I've never seen this man around town. Shakespeare's loins burn. Yes. Just with the sound of her voice. Uh, yeah, this. would you say that this is probably the most unbelievable plot element in the entire movie? The fact that Gwyneth Paltrow can even attempt to pass as a man. In this movie. Uh, yeah, especially like when they're on the riverboat riding together and they're like lusting after each other. That's either Gwyneth Paltrow or an incredibly beautiful man. It, but it, the point, Either way. <laughs> the, to your story, though, like for all the convincing that's done, you would think she had visited Harvey Firestein, a la Mrs. Doubtfire and got like a fucking face mold because it's not that much work. It's like right. she, it, she looks like Simple Jack when he's kidnapped by the the uh, internment camp and they put like the top of the broom on his head. That's what she looks like. Yeah. The thing is that the movie's trying to tell us that this is a real world. For all the zany happenings and going on uh, in the two hours of, of movie, you're still supposed to believe that this is happening in the real world. And Shakespeare and no one else really not noticing that uh, that Winnie Paltrow is a woman. Mm -hmm. That is insane. That well, and then, and then the movie also does the thing of like, um, I always make the example. I know I have one here before the, well, how do we make Michael Sarah or who, who do we get that's like slightly more intimidating than Michael Sarah? Oh, Jay Boruchel, like uh, <laughs> fucking Nick and Nora. In this, it's like. Let's find a young man who looks very effeminate and just put him next to Gwyneth Paltrow. And it'll just balance. It's like uh, <laughs> it's like white balancing a, a shot. Like, you know, you just put it there and then, yeah, it'll balance it out. I thought you were going to say that they cast Joseph Fiennes. They're like, Ray Fiennes would be too masculine. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think of that, but it's absolutely true. Joseph Fiennes, you can... You can believe that he's confused, yes. sexually confused to where he would just he wouldn't know what's going on. Or more or less, when they are next to each other, the audience can believe that he buys her as a man. If it's fucking oh, so big, he's an idiot. big burly bald Ray Fines next to, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow wearing her dad's shoes, like <laughs> <laughs> No, but see, that we kind of brought it up when we were watching it, and that is a much more interesting movie. The movie that explores William Shakespeare's kind of indirect alliances with bisexuality. Mm -hmm. 
okay, give, give it the Oscar just on concept alone. Yeah. But instead, they don't even play it as a joke. They just play it as, yeah, this is happening. He really needed, he didn't notice until somebody else told him. Yeah, it's uh, it's peculiar. She eventually takes the moniker, or not the moniker, she assumes the identity of Thomas Kent, who's the young, hot startup actor in Hollywood, or uh, London, as it were. And she, event- he, excuse me, eventually Thomas is given the role of Romeo in this new play. In real life, at like one of their local gatherings, I, does it even explain what they're doing? Like the first time he sees Viola? Uh, oh, he sneaks into her house. Is because, there like a banquet going on or something? Yeah, there's some sort of dance. I mean, the the purpose of that dance is that Colin Firth, which we haven't mentioned yet, but he... Oh, he was in my next bullet. Okay. Colin Firth wants to marry... Gwyneth Paltrow. Well, he so, already has made his intentions clear. In this scene, he does, excuse me. Right, but the, the the whole purpose of that dance is for him to, I guess, see the goods and decide if he if he was going to go for it. Because remember, he's asking her It's her like dad. the courting. Yeah. So, point being of this, it's the first time he sees her, but he's already heard her voice. So, the, the seeds have been planted for the little thing we call love. And he sees her dancing and, you know, is immediately, like, gobsmacked by her. She's beautiful. She's a good dancer. Jeffrey Rush has to like mop his jaw up <laughs> off the floor. She's beautiful. She's a good dancer, and she if sounds. You call what they're doing dancing. Well, old timey dancing is more like Pulp Fiction. This is not. Oh no, <laughs> but but on top of that, she sounds like Master Kent. She does. So Lord Wessex, the aforementioned Colin Firth, who man, he can't win one with me recently because he was also the bad guy in Mary Poppins, and that, that oh that's really? The most recent thing I've seen. Yeah. And, uh, my God. Do you have a mustache in Mary Poppins? That's one of these things of, like, I don't believe his character's supposed to be, like, bad or dramatic because everything he does makes me laugh in this. It's it's a waste of an actor. Misallocation of resources, which we, we see every now and then when we cover movies here. Because you have Imelda Staunton playing the nurse. And you have Colin Firth playing the bad guy. Swap them. Imelda Staunton is one of the baddest bad guys in the Harry Potter series. She can play a villain. Colin Firth is just a hot little thing. Yeah. You don't buy him as a threat. So swap them. He's make, a simple man. Yeah, make Colin Firth the nurse. Man, that would have been some pretty heavy uh, political <laughs> statements for the time, too. This movie is just a series of uh, missed opportunities. Lord Wessex, ready to kill because he realizes that Shakespeare has uh, lust in his eyes. Lust Shakespeare. Pulls a knife on him in the middle of this fucking banquet function whatever the hell they're doing i do miss times like that where you could just put a knife to a man's throat at a public gathering and no one would bat an eye at it and just be like yep he's taking care of business he must have done something he he deserved it um but we quickly learn i think it's that night that uh viola and shakespeare are very attracted to each other and uh, pine for each other's touch because of this, the the fire picks up not only in the pants, but in the heart and in the brains of William Shakespeare as the writing for his play picks up. And we get a fucking montage set to My Baby Takes the Morning Train while he's going through all these fucking rolls of papyrus and writing shit down. Old school style. Yeah, he's got his quill making the ink himself. It's like an old tattoo artist. Uh, there's also, because when he went and visited his, his witch doctor, he gave him this... <laughs> Remember, he gave him a, a a glass serpent, like a bracelet, and he said, write your name on a piece of paper, put it in here, then have a woman wear the bracelet, and that will take care of your problems. And I completely missed that. Is that what Rosaline is wearing? Right. She's okay. wearing that. And- so the, the lady of the town, which we quickly established into the film, 
has no qualms nor quarrels about becoming one with any man Anyone. in town. They should have almost played it to a comedic effect where, like, you know, the mid-credits scene, while we're She's not going like, to take it by Twisted Sister plays, and they walk in, and it's Ben Affleck having sex with her, and like, what? She's wearing, like, ten bracelets on her arm. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been tremendous. John Madden, for shame, didn't have enough foresight. And then the who's right? Mark Norman, which, again, doesn't surprise me. He didn't see into that. That motherfucker also wrote Cutthroat Island. I can. This movie's got me all kinds of fired up. This I movie can't speak. starts talking, it ends... With Shakespeare talking about shipwreck and ships and whatever. He just couldn't <laughs> let it go. <laughs> he, was, he was like Shakespeare at the end of this movie. He just started writing that bad boy. <laughs> Act one, Gina Davis walks in. Uh, speaking of Ben Affleck, business picks up as Ned Allen arrives. A- Allen? Alien? I, I don't ben know. Affleck. Ben Affleck, thank you. We'll just refer to them as their uh, surnames. Um, he is... You kind of had to explain this to me, but... Um, He's like the hot shit in the theater scene. He's he's Daniel Day Lewis. Okay. He, he uh, with an entourage. I had to look up the character's name because so I knew he's Vinny. Exactly what it reminded me of. Uh, John Lovitz played a character named Llewellyn Sinclair on an episode of The Simpsons called A Streetcar Named Marge, in which uh, it's obviously they're doing a play of A Streetcar Named Desire, but it's all like the local Springfield oafs. So this Llewellyn character is brought in because he's like a big wig play producer from two towns over uh, and he acts just like ben affleck does in this and like you know is this the one and only time that we've seen a british affleck god i would have to say so i mean i understand why yeah this is this should not be repeated ever no it's it's not just First the accent. Off, he's got a widow's peak that my god it, it i'm trying to, it makes jeffrey rush's facial hair look subtle he just looks so out of place it's not just the accent or even the haircut he's just so male model like everybody else in the company they look like actual actors people yeah. that are starving having trouble making ends meet and just you know you can see them totally living on the streets getting in bar fights Affleck comes in and he's just out of a GQ cover. He's he's just the guy. It just doesn't mesh well with everything else that's going on with the surroundings. He he just looks like he doesn't belong in that movie. A, from like an aesthetic standpoint, and also just like he's acting in a different movie than everyone. <laughs> well, that too. Yeah, his is the complete opposite of Jeffrey Rush's acting. Rush's is acting all capital letters and. Affleck is acting lowercase and different font. He's like talking in a British accent that you would like jokingly with your friends. And yeah, but his Boston accent still comes through. So just like, do I make you horny baby? <laughs> he's, in a, he's in an Austin Powers movie. Apparently. So he's there to basically pull shit together. He's got a part in it. He's not the director, but he's uh, the they, key. They leave him in charge at times. Because yeah, no one's going to question him because he, he's like the, the master of the stage. Lord Wessex makes it his intentions known to Viola that he's already cleared it with her dad. He's going to marry her. She doesn't have a say in the matter, but she's got to be inspected by Dame Judy Dench, who plays Queen Elizabeth. Again, another mention of her here on the podcast and this movie. Her name will come up quite often, way more than she's actually in the movie. <laughs> So they draw everyone to her castle. Keep in mind, this is when we've already had like several montages of sex going on between Will and Viola, correct? I think so. Because isn't this where like Lord Wessex comes to get her to take her to the her oh hearing? yeah that's right yeah and so because the thing ends with the queen saying she's not a virgin. Well, and You're also fucking idiot. The <laughs> you dumbass. 
takes a woman to know. And then uh, Colin Firth goes, what? Yes, <laughs> um, <He goes>, Newman. <laughs> but fucking, the reason I say it is because then this is when it turns into like a fucking Three Stooges gag with uh, Joseph Fiennes. He dresses himself up like a nurse. Right. Yeah. Oh, but- yeah, you're right. Cause that's, that's how he gets out of the, the room. He's He spent the night at Gwyneth Paltrow's. Again, the- what an idiot. <laughs> He's He's there. there. The rooster crows. There's all these people surrounding that place that could fucking kill him. He's there naked as the day he was born. And just like, oh, you going to make some breakfast, babe? On a story level, I understand because that's basically Romeo and Juliet. It's just about the the play itself. It's about her love making you stupid. And so, like, so much of of his work, according to this movie, of course, Shakespeare is just taken from his own experiences. So, and he's writing Romeo and Juliet here, but the movie is missing that extra step where it criticizes that behavior. Instead, it's just like, yeah, love makes you stupid. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that, isn't that what makes love epic and great? That's the final point of the movie that everything that Shakespeare and, and Gwyneth Paltrow do in this in this movie is celebrated. Yeah. They cheated on their significant others. <laughs> they ruined other people's lives, other people's businesses. But that's so cool because that's what, what great love stories are made of. So they all go to Queen Elizabeth's house. They're all like, yo, what's up? And they bring Viola to the front. And Queen Elizabeth kind of eyes her up and down and sees if she's fitting to marry Lord Wessex. Specks her teeth. Yeah. They get, they get into some... Uh, Spat about plays because Gwyneth Paltrow likes plays and acting, and this fucking becomes School of Rock and Hamlet Two and all these other movies where fucking you know uh, Rock and Roll High School, what you name it, where you know Judy Dench is just like all those Judy Dench movies. <laughs> she's like, you're too young. You don't know what art is. It's not real. And then fucking Gwyneth Paltrow's like, hey, man, you don't know what us kids are like. You know, you're living in your day. I want my MTV. You know, <laughs> tried and true bullshit. And Colin Firth is caught in the middle. And, and he's like chewing his nails just erratically <laughs> back and forth like a goddamn typewriter. And um, so what? And then fucking Joseph Fiennes starts like. Yelling from the back of the room like Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> Hello. And you know, uh what he fucking somehow coerces the king or queen, excuse me, into getting into some sort of bet about if a play can tell the real story of love, she'll pay him fifty pounds. This what kind is of why... fucking bet is that? That's the most subjective ass bullshit I could ever think of. You can't prove that to somebody. This is why the Great British Empire fell. Because <laughs> The queen was spending her time in this sort of nonsense instead of actually governing. In- I'll bet you all of my land you cannot make the greatest cherry pie of all time. And, and Shakespeare from... <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> Shakespeare from the background. Yes, he can! <laughs> yeah, exactly. And again, no one at all is... Um, He's not like Jasmine. He doesn't have this thing tied around like his face. He's holding this fucking napkin up to his face to cover up his nose down. He's like Wilson from fucking Home Improvement. If Wilson walked everywhere with a piece of the fence with him. The one thing that I guess you could give the movie is that it's consistent, right? In a world in where... it's badness. Right. In a world where people can't tell that Gwyneth Paltrow is a woman badly uh, dresses a man, they wouldn't be able to tell that Joseph Fiennes is a man badly dresses a woman. And again, you know, time period is a fair point because, like, this was a time where if you got, like, a cold, you were probably going to die. 
Like <laughs> you have, you people have, bigger, have things big, bigger things to worry about than you know. Uh, is the dress blue and black or is it white and gold? I guess in a way you could argue, and it's it's a shame that the movie doesn't make this point, that they were far more open-minded back then. They saw a dude dressed as a woman and he said that he was a woman. Okay. <laughs> he wants to go to the Whatever. women's restroom. Yeah. Go ahead. Use ye old restroom. <laughs> so the we we talked about this. So the whole significance, the uh, reason for the 50 pounds is it would essentially cover his, you know, his SAG fee, his application fee into the the Writers Guild of uh, London. He's tired of being a, a freelancer. Yeah, and then the, here this becomes some sort of fucking journalistic credit criticism. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he's he wants insurance because those syphilis uh, visits to the doctor are, are just getting too expensive. <laughs> no shit, that's another thing, man. Just all the fucking raw dogging that went on back then. I can't imagine. Julio and I were watching this. It's like, you ever wonder how bad people smelled back then? And you go, oh, all the time. <laughs> uh, so thank you for bringing up the the scroll, the bracelet, because I, I had lost out on the significance of this. Rosaline's man. Um, shit, what's that fucker's name? The owner of the other theater. The, yeah. the AMC manager. Yes. The evil local manager. Uh, Richard Burbage. He uh, is with his lady, and they... What does uh, isn't this when his uh, rival bursts in Marlowe? Right. Uh, yeah. He. There's a local playwright that you know. This is literally just like fucking Happy Days or you know any old show that had like the rival part. It's it's there. It's basically they're from Shelbyville for you Simpsons fans. <laughs> Marlowe's this rival playwright. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he comes in the entire time. He wrote Romero and Julieta. <laughs> No, but he is the guy that tells – there's that bar scene where he basically tells Shakespeare what to write. Shakespeare is going on and on about how, how he's blocked. And Marlowe goes, well, how about you write a play about two young kids from opposing families he's the, who fall in love? He's the, the hero from Coco. He just stole all his <laughs> shit his, his whole career. And Shakespeare doesn't even acknowledge. His, he just goes, I just had a great idea. Why don't I write a play? <laughs> That's about two rival families. Um, but anyway, yeah, Marlowe comes in and basically tells the AMC manager that that Shakespeare is not writing a play for AMC, which you know he's been paid for, and instead is writing a play for Regal. Mm. And the guy gets mad and says, "But I already paid for him." He went out and shopped it around. Right. Yeah. He he optioned it more than once. He had a juicy story, and he knew you know he could get it out there. So his Shakespeare plan was well for Regal. I'm writing Romeo and Juliet, and for AMC, I'm writing Juliet and Romeo. And you know, homeboy's pissed because he stops having sex with Rosaline when, like, he's way out kicking his coverage here. She's <laughs> way better looking than he is. So also, she's cheating on him left and right. So maybe it balances out. I guess that's true. Yeah, like everybody. Um, right, because there's something at one point where Shakespeare. It'd be like the fucking end on... of the first Ace Ventura. If like she comes out and she's like, you know, I have syphilis. Everyone in town would be like, ah, Tom Wilkinson, Ben <laughs> Affleck, um, the Queen, the the dog running around would be like, <laughs> that 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 would be that would have to be earlier in the '90s for it to use a joke like that. But um, yeah, so he gets mad, gets up, uh, he throws Rosaline off him, and this guy's day just goes from bad to worse because then the the bracelet she has breaks, and he sees Shakespeare's name inside of it. So, which really doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, but he immediately just jumps to conclusions, which again seems pretty common here because people die pretty just erratically. I mean, like you said, it's a small town. 
Yeah. You got to get the entertainment or your your feuds, your conflict, wherever you can get it. Oh, she was wearing a bracelet with Shakespeare's name. I must kill him. <laughs> so he goes and um, he tries to fight Shakespeare while they're doing a rehearsal of the play. And it it's just a big, like, played for laughs segment. Speaking of the Three Stooges, I mean, I did have the Three Stooges written down as a reference at this moment. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's just a big fight where they're they're using the props... To hit each other and it's like the end of Crazy Stupid Love. Yes, like, basically the, Kevin Bacon is like, "Well, it was your play. No, it was my play. No, it was his play." <laughs> Through all this, um, Lord Wessex gets the idea that it's been Marlowe that's been climbing up his uh, soon-to-be bride's chimney. Uh, the reason he gets this idea is, like you mentioned, the the Queen says, I don't know what this is a euphemism for. I didn't realize, excuse me, that this was a euphemism for sex, and I will be using it henceforth. Uh, <laughs> said, she's been plucked since I've seen her last, and not by you. I uh, think you can only use that once, though. I, mean, oh. I think you're only plucked once. Oh, okay. So we're so, under sorry, the impression was... she was a virgin? Right. Okay. Yeah. My bad. Yeah. I need to... You've, you've been... Plugged and replugged, Alex. You can't use that. Uh, you could say, I feel like I've been plucked once again. <laughs> Good Lord. And thinking, because he's a goddamn fucking idiot, Lord Wessex, thinking that Shakespeare is actually a nurse, uh, Wilmina, or whatever name he gave her, and asks, you know, has has any man doth been around? And he says, I, it was Marlowe. Apparently he's Irish now, but... Um, so he tells Marlo this, and then news gets back that Marlo's been killed. Yeah. Shakespeare, our hero, uh, got the guy that gave him the idea for Romeo and Juliet. He got him killed. In a way, it's a perfect crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, except the movie walks it back later. And so what yeah, could have been an interesting... with it, he really would have been the hero from Coco. <laughs> Marlo's killed. Obviously, Shakespeare blames it on himself. He goes to church, says 50 Hail Marys. Thinks... Falls to his knees in the mud and goes, what have I done? <laughs> It's true. He does say, what have I done? That's the level of screenwriting at play. He tries to do it like a, a bit more like, um, what have, what have I done? <laughs> Fuck, what is that? That's some solid Affleck British accent there. Yeah. So this uh, the news of Marla being killed comes the same night that Viola uh, learns that Will is a married man. Because it's after the fight with... Um, Rosaline's man, Burbage, and all that. And then, like, don't they come to some sort of silly agreement or some reconciling and they all go out drinking together? No, I don't think they drink together. I think that the the winners, uh, Tom Wilkinson's men. Oh, that's uh, right. They beat their ass and they want to celebrate. Right. Yeah, they they want to celebrate. They don't care that they just. They share just, they drinks just, later in the Right. Movie. Yeah. yeah, no. They destroy their set and they're going to celebrate, even though Jeffrey Rush is like, oh my God, that's our set. Yeah. So, through this. They think that fucking, you know, uh, Kent, Thomas Kent is just one of the boys and says, you know, yeah, Will's got a wife. So um, Thomas Kent gets very upset and like no one understands why. <laughs> Everyone's just like, hey, chill out, man. It's all right. He takes off. Shakespeare takes off after him. That's when we learn that Marlowe's been killed. Even if they knew that, that even if he was a, a, a man or a boy or if they knew that she was a woman, I think that the reaction would be the same because in this world, nobody cares about adultery, really, except for the one person that's being cuckold. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Everybody seems pretty chill with having sex with married people. Seems like a different, simpler time. Yeah. 
back in the day, you know, once I, I used to work with a guy that was uh, once or twice I heard him go, I wish we were just like dogs. You know, dogs, they want to have sex, they just have sex. Whoever Man. they walk past, just have sex, and then they move on. What a dangerous way of thinking. So, all right. Not much going on in your life. Yes. Yeah, for real. Not much going on in your head or heart. But that's kind of what it's like in Shakespeare times. You want to have sex? Make sure that the husband or the wife is not around. It and- seems that way. And the other thing is, too, there's definitely no... Um, it's ironic because it was a Weinstein film, but there's there's no sense of any sort of uh, force or anything like that. Everyone just seems down. It's pretty consensual. Yeah. Everyone's just down to clown back in the day. And... Marlowe's dead. Marlowe's funeral's the next day. Gwyneth Paltrow goes to it thinking that it's Shakespeare's funeral. So she's all distraught. Uh, Shakespeare comes in looking like fucking 10 pounds of shit in a five-pound bag. Clearly hasn't slept all night. Points at uh, Colin Firth. Just points at him with the, like, you're next, motherfucker, which makes no sense in context. And then he freaks out, Colin Firth, that is, and gets up and runs out. And he's just screaming, God, forgive me. Forgive me. No one in the church reacts to it. No one does anything. It's like this happens at every funeral. Again, small town. They just figured that's part of some story that's going on. <laughs> we'll get to it. We'll hear about it. Or Shakespeare will write a play about it. We'll, we'll hear about it eventually. Maybe not today, tomorrow, or nine months from now, but we'll hear about it. Um. So she's happy. He's alive. But through this also, the, it's kind of buried that Lord uh, Wessex now definitively knows that it's Shakespeare that's been giving it to her. So they go off. The the We kind of just cut into more of the play. The play is Romeo and Juliet now. Um, it's being finished. They're in the final stages of production. Um, after they wrap one day, uh, Shakespeare and Tom, Kent, start going at it again. She goes to take the mustache off, and he says, no, leave it on. <laughs> Um, she just shrugs. All right, and then we get like, uh, it pans out, and whatever they're fucking in the the bottom of the theater or whatever, there's like holes in the wall, and Pigpen. I don't know the kid's <laughs> name, but just this dirty bastard that hangs around the theater. He likes to play with mice. Uh, you know, he has rats, mice. But anyway, he's just time. doing the old like uh, land ho. He's got one eye through one of the holes, and just he he he. And then, of so course, are boobies. He, yeah, he said, make sure to stress that. And then he just sells them out for what looks like one pound. So you, you mentioned Ace Ventura before. So I don't know if you recognize the guy that he sells them out to. Who's what? The 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 Queen's sheriff? Some sort of political figure. That's right. He's an uh, Ace Ventura 2. Yeah, he's yeah. the British guy from Ace Ventura 2. Good one. Yeah, he seems like the... the, the Constable? Yeah, the, the number two, the Smithers to <laughs> yeah. Lord Wessex's Mr. Burns. So he gets paid off. Wessex rolls up, and actually, this is where Colin Firth, like the only time he looks like an actual badass, because he just rolls up on his fucking horse solo, doesn't? He? And he has like a fucking whole cachet of men that will help him out with this. And he rolls up and he just gets off and, you know, throws his cape off and just Shakespeare and pulls out his fucking sword and unseats it. And this is probably the one effective scene in the movie and definitely the one effective action scene in the movie because that fight it goes on for a little bit but it's it's kind of there's stuff happening and you feel finally like there's something at stake yes this man definitely wants to kill him yes but then of course it betrays it when it just turns it into a joke when yeah then the then oh no it's a prop sword yeah it's a it's a fucking it's um 
it's one step away from him pulling a gun and then it's a squirt gun. It's <laughs> basically what we're looking at here. It, but then it, it also ends with the a reveal that makes the movie weaker. Because then this is where we find out that, oh, it's not Shakespeare's fault that Marlowe died. Mm-hmm. It, just, it was just a bar brawl. It, it's really not his fault. And that makes the, the character a lot less interesting. Yeah. I really – I was digging the – the Shakespeare that looked like shit. Yeah. The Shakespeare that finally had something come back to haunt him. He's been going around the movie, ruining lives left and right, being really careless about what might happen to others because of his actions. And then when something finally happens, or he believes that something finally happened because of him, well, now he has some depth. Yeah. And then this movie just walks it back. So he can be the good guy. And then he immediately he immediately says out loud, uh, I'm freed of it. <laughs> it's like, What? Um, way to show a twinge of regret for the fate of your friend that basically wrote the play for you. Yeah, and then Colin Firth and all the you know all the bad guys. Then the fight's over, and then just like woman, she's a woman. <laughs> and up until this point, we've done a pretty good job of you know making her seem like a strong, independent character. But the way she's outed as a woman is Pigpen drops like a mouse on the back of her neck and she starts screaming like a woman and frantically, you know, pacing around. And then she bursts into tears. Yeah. Oh, she is a woman. Yeah. And it's even like when her hair comes down, they're still looking at her like they're not sure because she has the goatee. It's just wonderful. Uh, no wonder these people were so easy to entertain back in the day. <laughs> no joke. It's a spaceship, it is. <laughs> And so the Rose Theater's closed because the rule is you can't have a woman on stage. Fucking Trump's England right there. No joke. This was uh, as equally progressive as it was uh, regressive. So Viola, you know, her day goes from bad to worse. And this is just any movie ever montage shit. This is. uh, Well, there's a lot of montaging in this movie. I think that every time that they reach a a point where. Yeah. (laughs) But even. Most of the second act, most of the second act is just a voiceover of Romeo and Juliet, the play, mm-hmm. over them rehearsing uh, on stage, or Joseph Fiennes and Gwyneth Paltrow having sex, fading in and out of all these things. It, that's just how you pad it out to a little over two hours. Oh, yeah. There's that scene where they're having sex and like practicing their dialogue back and forth. It's like, it, dude. It, it, there's more than one scene that's that. Yeah. And, you know... Some movies pull that kind of shit off, like Shoot 'Em Up with Monica Bellucci and Clive Owen. Have you seen? Have yes. You seen? Yeah. yeah. Talk the about carrot. blowing your load. Yeah. Uh, Geely. Can't do <laughs> You're it. You're talking about sparkling conversation during sex. Anyway, Viola's day, week, month, year goes from bad to worse as she is wed to Lord Wessex. And I do love his just not, he doesn't give a shit what she wants. He's just like, come on now, let's get this over with. We, we've got to set sail to the colonies of Virginia. <laughs> So the play, though, it gets picked back up as uh, Burbage, who was you know, scorned by the love of um, Shakespeare on his wife, comes back and basically says, for the love of the art, you know. Right. Yeah. AMC says, okay, you closed the Regal, but you were not closed the arts. Mm-hmm. We will play your movie here. We will show the interview one way or the other. <laughs> we will honor your guest passes <laughs> and your coupons. So he opens up his theater. So it's back on. Romeo and Juliet will premiere. This time, Will's just going to fill in for the role of Romeo, not to our uh, lauded Thomas Kent. Full-on Shyamalan here. Oh, absolutely. He could have cast anybody else, 
but, but the, he's got to be the hero. He just goes, I guess I have to play the most important part in the play. <laughs> he's just rolling up his sleeves. Man, who would have known this would have happened, huh? Um, <laughs> he just put his arm around the fucking Jeffrey Rush. He's like, fortunately, we have a very good Romeo right here. And then it just cuts to him putting the suit on. There's flyers for this that are somehow whipped up overnight. Or not even that. It's like a fucking four-hour window. And these flyers are, you know, getting caught in the wind. Uh, one of them goes on right into Colin Firth's face after he's married. Um, and quicker than he can turn around, Viola's already gone, heading to town to see this play. I don't know what happens here, because basically she gets there. Colin Firth gets there before the play starts. But then all of Colin Firth's men, like the local militia, I guess just hoof it on foot. Because the entire duration of the play, we keep getting these cuts to them just kind of marching towards. No, no, the no. Theater. The people that are marching are the 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 sheriff's men, not Colin Firth's men. Oh, okay. Yeah, because uh, and that's because they figured that the the sheriff was going to go, even though technically they haven't broken the law. Uh, AMC was not told not to put on display, mm-hmm. but he's gonna go and, and start trouble anyway. So, long story short, Viola gets there and she plays the role of Juliet. So we have this. As it was destined to be, as it were, as you would imagine, plays a hoot, goes off big, everyone loves it, woo. I think this plants the seed back in the old days of something that we still suffer for in modern day, which is dramas being celebrated much more than comedies. If you might remember at the beginning of the movie that the whole common wisdom is write a comedy will comedy is what sells what yeah. people want is pratfalls and a, and a funny dog in there the queen laughs everybody laughs and then shakespeare's like but i'm in love i want to write something that's tragic and whatever and then he does and it becomes a big success and that's where basically comedies got screwed and they, it's so hard for them to win oscars now yeah you you will pick now from then on you would pick romeo and juliet over i don't know one of the bullshit <laughs> shakespeare comedies I bet you that the queen was not present at whatever else he wrote next, even though she requested it. So the play concludes. It's good. Everyone likes it. Uh, The sheriff's men show up to shut it down and arrest everyone there for indecency. Says if the queen was here and it turns out the queen was there. I don't know how they missed her in her fucking dress that's five feet wide. So There is no way that there had to be somebody sitting either next to the queen, behind the queen, or... Right in front of the queen. That that place was packed. Or there's just like a big cloak over her and everyone's like, hmm, I wonder if that's part of the play. Um, so she's there and says, you know, no one's doing jack shit. Uh, Colin Firth is there. He ends up watching the play, I guess. I don't know if you liked it. <laughs> I, I There is a moment where the camera holds on him because the play is over. Everybody is clapping. It, there's close-ups of every single significant player. Jeffrey Rush is just fist-pumping. <laughs> and then the camera ends on Colin Firth. And he seems like he doesn't know if he needs to clap or not. <laughs> and I honestly... It could have gone either way. At, at that point, I don't know what would have made me respect the movie more. If it just embraced the ridiculousness of it all and just had Colin Firth admit that he It should have him, like, put his hands in front of him like he's going to clap and then fade to black a la Inception. <laughs> Credits. <laughs> A John Madden film. Uh, But no, we still have more to go. So the theater clears out. The queen's not going to do anything. She uh, awards Shakespeare. She says, yes, this taught me the true meaning of love. Here's your 50 pounds. But she has to be the bearer of bad news as well, saying that anything that's bound by God, she cannot undo. So 
Sorry, Gwyneth Paltrow, you're still married to Colin Firth, and you're going to go sail to the, the colonies of Virginia. Because a woman's happiness Colony. is not as important as the arts. Oh, no, it's not as important as uh, God's will. <laughs> well, that too. Yeah. And so Judy Dench says something lighter next time, perhaps the twelfth night. She gives the money to Gwyneth Paltrow, keeps calling her Thomas Kent, which I thought was funny. She's like, go fetch Viola, make sure this money gets to the right place. And she goes up, goes to say her goodbyes to William Shakespeare. And then we get, you know, the the pitch meeting where they're just throwing ideas back and forth at each other for his next play. He's he's like, how am I going to write if you leave? Who's going to feed me the lines now? (laughs) And then she's like, well, you have a wife, don't you? (laughs) Try talking to her. Yeah. And she goes off. We have our tearful goodbye. He goes back to start writing. His next play is going to be about her. We get a voiceover from Joseph Fiennes about how you know he's found his inspiration and he'll always she'll always be his love. He basically says every play is going to be about her. He's he's going to be Adam Duritz. He's always his songs are about just the one girl. And then we see fucking Gwyneth Paltrow walking on the beach like Nicole Kidman in Australia. Like I just expect like a drone shot to go overhead. And then boom, a John Madden joint. He taught us the meaning of love, allegedly. It's such a... I, I, I'm not much of a Shakespeare fan. Not even an aficionado. I know the movies based on his mm-hmm. work. But I I don't know. I think that this movie panders to the Shakespeare community, whatever oh, that may be. This movie panders. <laughs> but I do wonder if, if they actually felt insulted by what they ended up saying about Shakespeare, right? Not just... That he he was not as original a writer as you would think, but also he was just kind of the worst. If if you were not somebody that was directly profiting from his work and his adventures, mm-hmm. you were probably getting screwed by him. And that's not something that the movie addresses morally. It's just like, oh, isn't it funny that he was an adulterer? Isn't it funny that he was an irresponsible uh, artist? They treat the fact that he cannot keep up with his deadlines as a joke. When yeah. really, would Jeffrey Rush is probably late on his rent. <laughs> I mean, that, I, like it's partially implied they like share an apartment or something. So <laughs> it's like he's having to go into his pocket to pay Shakespeare's part of the rent. Yeah, I. It bothered me as a non-Shakespeare fan. I can only imagine how much it would bother me if I cared. Yeah, I do remember my British lit course in college. The professor always talking about like about that one time that Shakespeare thought that he had killed Marlowe. <laughs> Just all, like, Shakespearean movies and shit like that and how much they always get it wrong. Uh, Anyway, yeah, that was uh, Shakespeare in Love, and it won a bunch of shit. Like Shakespeare in No, as you refer to it. (laughs) All right, well, let's do some real talk. Let's do. I've been waiting for this all day. My lady, the house is stirring. It is a new day. It is a new world. Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much, which mannerly devotion shows in this. For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. Have not saints' lips? And holy palmer's too? Aye, pilgrim. Lips that they must use in prayer. Oh, then, dear saint, let lips do what hands do. I pray, grant thou lest faith turn to despair. Saints do not move, though grant for prayer's sake. It's you. Suffering cats! Then move not, while my prayer's effect I take. 
All right, we are recording for Real Talk for Shakespeare in Love. I want to start off Real Talk with the immortal lyrics of Let Me Kill Mister um, of Motorhead fame. It's all about the game and how you play it. I mean, if Shakespeare himself <laughs> hasn't proven that in this movie, then <laughs> what were you watching? So... Yes, this is Real Talk for Shakespeare in Love. This is the portion of the podcast where, despite the ranking of the film one way or the other in Rotten Tomatoes, we express our true and actual sentiments towards it. Again, this is a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's up there. It's one of the higher ones we've done. Eh, that's not true. We've done a lot in the 90s. It's usually like the high ones we do don't range too much. It's usually the rotten ones. The fresh ones are usually from like 90 to 100. It's the a lot easier to find fresh movies that are... 90 and up that would be good episodes because rotten we usually probably shoot for like between 40 and zero yeah that in general we do 30 and less yeah it, that's, it, that's for, it for it to be between 30 and 40 it has to be a movie that would be a lot of fun to do mm -hmm. so yeah that, th this one's up there and it was released on december 3rd 1998 um it was like two hours almost on the nose we watched uh, yeah. i read a few places it was like 220 and shit that's the director's cut yeah <laughs> Uh, More boobies. Yeah, that that was enough. Um, full frontal from Ray Fiennes, not Ray. <laughs> the Ray Fiennes version of this movie is yes. two twenty. It's the 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 audition tapes that they put in there. All right, drop them. Um, budget of twenty five million, box office return of a little bit under three hundred million. This one, you know, took the world by storm. Uh, the ninth highest grossing film of nineteen ninety eight was Armageddon ninety eight. Uh, if it was, it was not nominated. Okay. Well, <laughs> it took me a second there to catch on to it. Let me see. But this, that would explain this why. This is going to bug me. Yeah, it was Armageddon. Yeah. Armageddon made uh, $550 million. That explains why Affleck didn't have as much screen time here, because he was busy saving the world. Uh, Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Godzilla was one of the top five grossing movies. I'm here, so I'm just going to... Armageddon, Saving Private Ryan, Godzilla, There's Something About Mary, A Bug's Life were the five highest grossing movies of 1998. Now, Shakespeare in Love was nominated for, uh, I think it was like 13 Oscars, and it won seven. Um, best Picture, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Original Screenplay amongst those that were won. What's that scoffing at, at Gwyneth Paltrow's win? Who did she win over? I thought she was delightful in this movie. Okay, so that brings us to my next point here. <laughs> you know, we have our quotes and stuff that we read. Uh, actually, let's go ahead and uh, get, the let's get our rotten quotes out of the way. Okay. Yeah, mine's going to be a bit long-winded. All right, so rotten quotes, the eight percenters in this scenario. Uh, Paul Tatera from CNN.com said, I just wish that the script wasn't so insistent on showing off. Shakespeare? even when he kowtowed to the peasants, knew how to quit. I mean, this is somebody who's not a Shakespeare fan no. and just was annoyed at all the jokes going over his head. Just say it plainly. Uh, Diana Albizu from Sensacine says, a good, oh, it's a Spanish review, so it's Sensacine. Uh, says, a good cast, if you can forget for a moment, the protagonist, Joseph Fiennes. Boom. <laughs> that was like the opposite of that Sandler swipe. Like, I'm going right to the core of this. I won my Ray Fines. Give me or give me Ray Fines or give me nothing. Uh, <laughs> give me Fines or give me death. Jonathan Romney 
from The Guardian says, Sniping at what's already been celebrated as a major national triumph always looks not quite cricket. But Madden's film, it's transparently one of those things that the British do so well and the Americans fund so handsomely. I'm assuming he's British because he's writing for The Guardian. Uh, and then finally, this is actually a fresh quote from Chris Cabin from Slant. one of those backhanded compliments. Oh, dude. <laughs> Chris Cabin from Slant Magazine says, The environs and costumes look superb on the Blu-ray debut of Shakespeare in Love, making this sloppy, repugnant film they encase all the more <laughs> 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 uh, Outstanding. Yeah, the sloppy, repugnant film. Um, wow. Maybe he's talking about the transfer. I don't know. No, that wouldn't make yeah, sense. Yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah, that's no, a heavy I, one. I don't know. Chris came somehow he's he slipped that one through as a, as a fresh tomato. <laughs> uh, okay, so yeah, if you're a first time listener to the podcast, I apologize for the deep dive I'm about to do right here. Uh, if you listen to us, a long time listener, anything like that, you've known I, I bring this movie up on occasion just out of my, um, I don't know if it's bitterness or this movie changed the award season and like the way the Oscars are handed out forever. And in my opinion for the worse. And so because of that, uh, like I told Julio and we'll get into this. Um, I think I dislike, I dislike what this movie did more than I dislike the movie itself. Cause I really don't have that many big of an issue with it, but you're like one of those guys that say star Wars ruined blockbuster blockbusters forever. No star Wars in, like invented that. Yeah. But there's some dudes that are like, you know what? Summer releases. Now they're all about the toys and it's because of star Wars. Okay. That that's a flawed argument. Like, <laughs> because the whole point is like, there was no way ever that anyone in the history of the world in 1977 could have predicted how big Star Wars would have become. That's saying that, when you say that, you're saying that the original Star Wars was released just to make toys. Where it was just like, George Lucas was just like, well, let's see what happens. And well, the world was like, eh! Right, but I think that the argument goes that if Star Wars hadn't done that, Regardless of its intent, if the result of Star Wars hadn't been that now everybody is all about the merchandise when it comes to... I'm going to go ahead and cut you off because the intent of what happened here was to, like, corrupt the awards system. And I'm not saying that, like... Shakespeare, like, like Tom Stoppard and Ruben, what's his name, and <laughs> and uh, John Madden. He's like, no more football. I want to ruin the Oscars. <laughs> uh, no, but I've heard that about Star Wars before, and obviously my naturalistic instinct is, like... Don't talk shit about the original Star Wars. I'm not going to accept it. <laughs> I'm not one of those guys, but I've seen plenty uh, yeah. of those guys. And I appreciate you playing as devil's advocate because for the sake of that, it's going to need to be done. So for this, I did a little bit more research than I typically do because I've read about this movie kind of extensively in the past. I wanted to find an article that kind of encapsulated um, some of the history around it. So for the first time ever, uh, we're going to kind of go to the bookshelf, so to speak. And uh, I'm going to read um, an excerpt from the story I found called uh, Shakespeare in Love and Harvey Weinstein's Dark Oscar victory. This was uh, written by Rebecca Keegan and Nicole Sperling, and it was released in a special issue of Vanity Fair back in 2017. Now, skipping through the first few paragraphs, uh, obviously the main thing when we bring up Harvey Weinstein's name, yeah, this was when a lot of that shit started to come out already. Uh, it addresses the first few paragraphs and the closing paragraphs, which I'm not going to be reading about basically how he uh, was obviously in understandably so forced out of the academy uh, to basically exit the industry in disgrace and even um 
Gwyneth Paltrow had a story about him that obviously wasn't as appalling or um, angering and disgusting as some of the other stuff that came out about him. But that that's all stuff taken into consideration there. And then also we've talked kind of there's been a couple weird tangents in the past where we've gone off about this and kind of talked about the Harvey Weinstein thing. Um, so. Yeah, when we talk, if I talk shit about this movie or if we say things, don't take that as, you know, we're like downplaying or anything, what he did uh, during this time before this and after it. Right. It's like we know that he's done worse things that ruined the Oscars. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's just not as much fun to talk about that. Stuff. Yeah, that that gets sad. And, it, you know, there's really there's no debate around that. <laughs> like you either. I will not play devil's advocate. There. Thank you. Yeah. If you're someone that would debate it, I doubt that we we don't want you on the podcast and don't want you listening to the podcast. So, uh, so you probably stopped listening when I said Trump's England. Yeah, <laughs> touche. So getting to the point where I'm going to pick up, um, they also the last point they had talked about before we're going to jump into this article here was uh, at an original test screening, um, they had to basically go back and reshoot uh, the ending because it was originally like. Viola was like inconsolable and really tearful, but they wanted to have an ending that was a bit more empowering than devastating. That's which I thought the ending does play off kind of well because she's the one that's like he's the one that's in hysterics. Yeah, and, and she's more confident than that. Um, okay, so once the ending was tweaked, the movie tested off the charts with general audiences and won over the industry crowd at its New York premiere. A limited release opening weekend in eight theaters brought in $224,012, a respectable showing that suggested a robust box office future. Still, Weinstein needed to win over one key crowd. At the Los Angeles premiere uh, at the prestigious Academy Theater, the film's reception was more muted. Weinstein was concerned and mid-screening demanded an explanation from a colleague at the event. I told him, these people are rooting against you to succeed, not for you to succeed, the associate said. Weinstein's challenge was to win over skeptical Academy members. To do so, he turned on the marketing engine that had helped him nab the Best Picture statuette for The English Patient and nominations for both Pulp Fiction and The Crying Game. Uh, quick insert, I heavily resent that jab at Pulp Fiction. Uh, <laughs> only this time... Wein Are you sad that it's no so black and white, Alex? <laughs> only this time Weinstein was going up against Hollywood royalty in Spielberg. No-nonsense marketer Terry Press, then at DreamWorks, and a film that had been the front-runner since July. By the time Shakespeare in Love opened in limited release on December 11, 1998, Saving Private Ryan had been in theaters for nearly five months and was well on its way to making $481.8 worldwide. We hadn't yet had the situation where the grubby little people from New York dared to threaten the kings of Hollywood, said Gill. Uh, Gill here is uh, Mark Gill, Miramax's L.A. president at the time of the, the release of Shakespeare in Love. Uh, this was describing the method of campaigning as hand-to-hand -hand combat in the form of screenings, parties, and nonstop publicity. We used to joke that working at Miramax was like working at a tiny labor camp with a nice lobby. Weinstein strong-armed the movie's talent into participating in an unprecedented blitzkrieg of press. It all began with Harvey, said one publicist, with a client in the film. Uh, I don't remember even feeling pressure like from the other studios. He was like, can you do these radio call-ins in the morning? He calls the clients directly and guilts them. He really was a kind of a beast. This is what Gil confirmed, the studio's reliance on relatively cheap publicity. 
This was not saying to the stars, okay, you can go on a couple talk shows to open the movie and do a weekend of interviews on a junket, and thank you so much for helping, Gil said. This was, good morning, you've got three months of shaking hands and kissing babies in you. Weinstein ticked off Academy Brass by paying for a Welcome to America party for John Madden, who is British, at Elaine's in New York, and invited Academy members. Uh, appearing to violate a 1997 Academy rule that deemed such receptions improper. He also employed numerous consultants to lobby the members and started negative whisper campaigns. They tried to get everyone to believe that Saving Private Ryan was all in the first 15 minutes, said Press. I said to Steven Spielberg, listen, this is what's going on. Steven said to me, I do not want you to get in the mud with Harvey. Weinstein played into the inherent narcissism of the Academy, its love of seeing actors and writers like themselves as heroic characters on screen, and he pushed the novelty of the film. As a literal love story posing what might have been the inspiration for Shakespeare's first theatrical hit, it made its mark instantly with many of us, said Tony Angelotti. Sorry if I mispronounced that. Uh, This was an Academy member and publicist whom Weinstein hired as a consultant on the film. It was also, at its heart, about making the creative process and taking that a step further, analogous to the filmmaking process. In addition to Weinstein's barnstorming strategies, Shakespeare and Love benefited from a quirk of technology, the addition of screeners on VHS tape that allowed Academy members to watch contenders in the comfort of their homes. With timing, technology, and Weinstein's uh, brazenness on its side, Shakespeare and Love ended the 71st Academy Awards with seven Oscars, including those for Best Picture and Best Actress for Paltrow. Saving Private Ryan won five, including that for Best Director for Spielberg. When Weinstein took the stage that night to accept the Best Picture Prize, it was an unorthodox move for a studio chief and one that rankled some of the Academy's members in its audacity. He delivered a speech thanking a roster of collaborators, including his brother, Bob, quote, my partner and my best friend every day. Despite the conventional pushback, Miramax Shakespeare campaign became the model moving forward. The whole apparatus for campaigning became a cottage industry, said Press. Harvey gave birth to it. It was a blanket commitment of resources. It was the first time, at least for me, that negative campaigning and trashing somebody else's movie became uh, de rigueur. Gill confirmed that the negative speak was part of Weinstein's plan and doesn't apologize for it. Did it sway voters? Maybe. But there's no question that it was done and it may have made the difference. So, (laughs) when you watch Shakespeare in Love, not when you think about it, when you watch it, how much of this weighs on you? A lot. Well, that's a damn shame, Alex Mattis. (laughs) I understand. I mean, we are human. Yeah. I... When I watch Shakespeare in Love, not that I watch it often, I haven't seen it probably in 10 years, but the thought of, oh, this unfairly won the Best Picture Oscar over Spielberg's Saving Pride Ryan doesn't really come to mind until somebody brings it up, or if it comes up, it's just some trivia. It's not only that for me, it's the... It it, it made campaigning, dirty it got, campaigning. It's how Melissa Leo figured out how to get an Oscar. Like, it, it's... <laughs> how that that worked i don't know and yeah it, that's obviously not at all to say that there was no questionable decisions or like uh immoral calls or shit like that prior to this but like to me this is especially something during my lifetime i can point to and say this damaged the sanctity of this thing that i liked and you know obviously someone had to do that eventually because that's the way all these things go um but to your point there's still a lot I can enjoy about this. Right. That, okay. That was good because I don't think most. It's not the I think fault of people, anyone in the movie. Right. Everybody in the movie is doing what they were supposed to do. And I think they're doing it really well. And I also don't think that even the people that love this movie 
I would imagine most of them would agree that Saving Private Ryan is a better movie. <laughs> so maybe that's why it doesn't bother me, really. Because if I believe real that that Weinstein's campaigning actually fooled the world into thinking Shakespeare in Love is a better movie, that would probably anger me more. But no, he just he fooled the Academy voters, which is not that hard to do, no. <laughs> apparently, if you go by just the history. I mean, the, the history of... Uh, the best movie not winning best picture that happens before Weinstein a lot like yeah. you just said it so uh, he figured out a more consistent formula of doing it probably and he dirtied up the game in a way that hadn't been dirtied up before mm-hmm. so fuck him but not fuck Shakespeare in Love I, I I enjoy it as much as you know I would enjoy a movie a romantic comedy about Shakespeare which is halfway to that question it's kind of like my thing with the artist where like I know it's fine but like I watch it and I get mad because I'm like and again, the the academy is like what eighty five percent old white dudes. So they're, they're working on it. I, I know they are, but let, let's be honest about back then, especially. <laughs> yeah, I, I know they're working on it, and God bless them for it. But that's always a thing. I get way more emotionally like wrangled about these things than I should because it's like, yeah, of course, of course, this one, of course, fucking the the artist one. Like that's to them, that's what they think works. And the I never do this. Was like the first year they had screeners like vhs's and shit i thought that was cool um it is uh even before the article before you read the article i mean i had it on my notes this is a cabinet catnip because it has everything it's a crowd pleaser it's historical piece historical piece well-known actors uh playing small roles fresh talent Mm -hmm. emerging as, as stars uh you know, this is Gwen Paltrow's coming out party. Pretty she, much. She owns it. Uh, she kept her head on in this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so it, it's it's all it's Shakespeare, so it's, it's, you know, culturally relevant. Mm-hmm. It's, of course, I think even with the Weinstein push, I mean, obviously, it, I, I guess it was never was going Affleck to be. Was hot a, yet? Was he, like, really hot? It was 98, so not really. Not really, but I knew who he was. Yeah. I mean, Armageddon, he was already cast in Armageddon. He already made Armageddon, so... Yeah, this is one of those that, like, it would be way funnier if Ben Affleck did this in, like, 2005 or something like that. But even here, I mean... He was an Oscar winner by now. For... Uh, Goodwill Hunting. Okay, that came out before this. Okay. Uh, yeah, and he he's not... He's funny. It's one of those things, like, for Ben Affleck being a British person, you kind of wish he was more over the top than he actually was, so... Yeah, I... I, I... I stand by what I said in Contrarian's Corner. He looks out of place. I like him. I'm fine. Oh, he's I, definitely out of place. But he just doesn't look anything like anybody else. Almost everyone else in this movie, I could probably guarantee has done like actual theater in their life, and I cannot say that for Ben Affleck. It's just so weird. He doesn't look period accurate. Mm. And I don't know if they just need to dirty him up a little more. Uh, but it's all like he does, a movie with fucking... Uh, Colin Firth and Judy Dench and Ben Affleck's in there too. Like, what the fuck? This is man. Can you imagine? You put. Uh, uh, I always go. My go-to for great actor now. Is Josh Gad. I mean, the Gad could conquer this. It, it would take. <laughs> it would take a lot of work. But no, I was thinking Fastbender. To me, every time somebody oh, asks me, God, yeah. Fastbender would get the. It's not just the accent, but he he just you can buy him as as the all-star actor of the yeah, all the times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so 
I think that, yeah, definitely the nomination was probably a, a no-brainer, and it was just a dirty campaign and put it over the top. On the other hand, Saving Private Ryan is just, it's a rough watch, and I love that movie. Yeah. But maybe the Academy just didn't feel comfortable. Uh, they couldn't have size more up there, man, on live TV. <laughs> Don't know where it would have gone down. Uh, okay, but you scoffed when you when we're... When you mentioned Gwyneth Paltrow, who was she up against? I didn't mean to scoff at her. It's because oh. my eyes went on to Judy Dench. And like, obviously, Judy Dench is a fucking beacon of hope and like you know, uh, impeccable actress. But she, this movie's like two hours long. I was being genuine. She's on screen for about six minutes total. Right. And I know there's been a couple cases of supporting acting where it's only been like for like. 15 minute segments of it and stuff like that but to me that's just kind of knowing what i know of all that and then that on top of it is like and god bless judy dench but i I wouldn't say call this like one of her more well i mean she's great for what the movie demands of her she could be holding a can of miracle whip and be like "Eh?" (laughs) and it'd be like god bless um so yeah i wasn't scoffing at gwyneth paltrow gwyneth kind of She's always kind of come off as really smug to me in interviews, which I don't really think that's much of a surprise. So I kind of always have that like we do as humans. That's why we read like people and shit like that. We always kind of want to know what celebrities are like. So I'm kind of always like, eh, with her. But like, um, uh, you know how much I love Contagion. I think she's really good in that. And uh, Because she dies? No. she's <laughs> Like, her acting is very believable. I think um, she's great in this. That's the first thing that came to mind. Yeah, she is great in this. So uh, I wasn't scoffing at that. I'm just kind of trying to backfill my. I have friends that are like Gwyneth Paltrow monologue. Um, uh, Joseph Fiennes, not nominated. Not even the power of the Weinstein machine could make that happen. No, and but he's not, good. Not from lack of trying. It's right. just he's he's very forgettable, and he's in the unfortunate situation of being like. The in, junior version of... In the fucking gallery. Like, in the peanut gallery with a bunch of fucking stars. Uh, I think it's fine, but I really... I, I think I know of just one other movie where he plays a significant part. Uh, Enemy at the Gates with Jude Law and Rachel Weisz. Have you seen it? I have not. He He's the the other part of that love triangle. He's, um, he's pretty good in it. And then he was on that TV show... Flash forward, I think I never watched it, but I remember, oh, look, Joseph Fiennes made it to TV now. That guy. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, it's just kind of, you would think that this is a movie that would have made him a star if it was if something was going to make him a star. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. This, this was it. Poor guy. It's like. Everybody else got the, to reap the rewards. and He, he read that article and was like, I still didn't get anything. <laughs> Uh, coming back around, it's funny you brought up Jude Law. Kenneth Branagh, Daniel Day-Lewis, and Jude Law were all considered to play the part of William Shakespeare. Now, if any one of them had played it, they would have swept the Oscars that year. Branagh's too old. Even back then, I mean. Yeah. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis would have still been, like, what, 40 then? Is he that old? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Day-Lewis would have been... no. I, the only one I can see is Jude Law. Yeah. For, the, for the kind of movie they seem to be going and for. And that would have been too ridiculous, the the beauty of him and fucking Gwyneth Paltrow on screen. Uh, Russell Crowe stated he was offered the part by Harvey Weinstein, but he would have to sign a package deal of four films. Crowe tried to still get the part of Shakespeare, but wouldn't sign anything. Uh, the writer of this, um, what would we say his name was? Mark something or other? Norman something? Is it Mark Norman? I hope so. Yes, Mark Norman. Norman writer, Norman. Writer of Cutthroat Island. Uh, 
That's that's what he's meant for. He conceived this in 1988, and it was basically a lot of shopping around, like for a decade to get the movie made. And like when it was originally supposed to be made, which uh, I think it was 92, is that's when they had Julie Roberts attached to it, and that fell through. Now the I, most I don't know that I could buy Julia Julia ah, Juliet Lewis Julia Roberts. No, I could buy Juliet Lewis. <laughs> Um, anything. No, I don't know that I could buy Julia Roberts as period. God, like, no. It would be then Affleck would have seen right at home. He would, yeah. <laughs> he Affleck been... would have seen like you know fucking. Uh, he had just come from Broadway onto this. <laughs> and I like Julia Roberts, but it just again, it's just a type. Mm-hmm. She could surprise me. But have you seen that movie, uh, Mary Riley? It's mm-hmm. a Jekyll and Hyde adaptation, but told from the point of view of. Jekyll's maid or something. I was hoping you were just going to say just told from the point of Julia Roberts. Well, basically. Oh, okay. <laughs> Julia Roberts' place is made. And so I want to say it's definitely a period piece and she probably has a British accent. And I I haven't seen it since it came out. I saw it in theaters. It was not great. Malkovich plays Jekyll and Hyde. Yes. <laughs> that part, it's great. Yes. Right? And, um, I don't know. It, I, but I think... My body is trembling. <laughs> I am becoming him. Uh, yeah, to your point, I, is she viable in that? As far as I can remember, I don't remember her not be. I don't remember her being the problem with the movie, just kind of the way it ends. So one thing that does work extremely well for this is the movie's packed with heavy punchers, but the two leads, and because we watch it now through 2018 or 2019, Jesus uh, lenses, and of course Gwyneth is going to overpower. But then neither of them were like big enough to overpower, so like they play off each other really well, and yeah. you don't feel it becomes a movie about one or the other. Yeah, I think uh, I remember watching it in theaters, and at the time it was just that actress from Seven. Mm-hmm. So I do remember that that feeling of wow, she's really good. I just imagine you going into watching it in Peru in the theater, and she comes on the screen, and everyone goes, "What's in the box?" <laughs> siete, siete. <laughs> Uh, this last piece, I got to get in my info out here. Gwyneth Paltrow saw the script at Winona Ryder's office table in 1997 and asked if she could read it. Paltrow got the part without telling Ryder she was going for it. She pulled a Shakespeare. The former friends haven't been friends since because of Paltrow's selfishness, later winning an Oscar for the part. But then Winona Ryder got on Stranger Things. And life is good again. <laughs> what a cutthroat business. I mean, fuck, man. Especially with how things were back then in Hollywood. I I don't blame fucking... <laughs> how things were back then? How things are? <laughs> what? I mean, you, when you say, I don't blame her for the way... Oh, I'm sorry. Like, people weren't as uh, willing to just... You know, I feel like it was probably a harder industry for women. Not to say it's still that much easier, but you know what I mean? Like they the, were not banding together the way they are now. Apparently not. <laughs> we're not a writer now. We're not a writer. Like, you can have if that they, script. Or no, now they would read together and yes. they would say, you know, we're, we're auditioning as, a, a, the, as, a, as an act. And they would go, I like that part, but that's the guy. Rewrite it. <laughs> it's like a Portlandia skit. Um, I, I just thought that was pretty funny um, or more fascinating than funny. Uh, something else I really like about this, it's very, very, very small, but I thought it was a really nice touch and really something that is in a sort of, um, we talked about Lou and Davis, but a nice touch. And you can tell the person that wrote that is someone who's been around like the industry like that. The, 
the part of the boat, like the the rowboat, and the guy like it's like, oh, I'm a writer too. You want to read this? <laughs> there's there's a lot of stuff like that throughout the movie that really is what I enjoyed because I was not kidding. Contreras Corner. I'm not a Shakespeare guy, mm-hmm. and I'm guessing you aren't either. Uh, I mean, I enjoy the stories for what they are but uh, yeah i'm not i can't recite shit page and verse nor do i go out of my way i, I can't read it I, that's it and it may be that just english oh, like is the way not, it's written yeah i okay. can't and there's a lot of that here so like my thing with musicals like where the dialogue is sung like i can't do that. yeah if the dialogue is just it's shakespeare then it just i really can't get into it but i know a lot of people that love it i mean it's it's shakespeare I, I, at this point i've given up on trying to appreciate shakespeare the way that other people appreciate shakespeare I'm just like I'm sure you can still appreciate his contributions without like going in and oh re- yeah, yeah 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 but what I mean is this is not my jam yeah. so there's long stretches of the movie that is just they're just made for Shakespeare fans those mm-hmm. montages that we kind of made fun of in Contrarian's Corner where it's just his words and voiceover as as people get close-ups of them being enraptured by his poetry. I can appreciate it in the sense that I know what the movie's going for and I understand it, but on a personal level, it doesn't resonate with me. Yeah. So reading Romeo and Juliet or hearing the dialogue from Romeo and Juliet doesn't really do much for me. What works for me is when I see the when they actually put on the play and you get the abridged version of the play and they hit you see all the all the greatest hits and the audience reacting to that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what I really like in the movie. Uh the idea that I don't know how true how true it is, but that this little town at least had no concept of what a tragedy was. Yeah. <laughs> and then Shakespeare just he tricks him into going to see this because everybody thinks it's going to be a comedy. Well, no, he says tragedy in the flyer by mm-hmm. the time that it's done. But anyway, nobody's expecting this. And it ends in a horrible way where they both kill each other and all this stuff. Uh, and the the reaction where the crowd is silent until one guy starts clapping and then it's a big hit. All yeah. that stuff. I That's what I dig. The Shakespeare itself aspect of it, I it really takes me out of the movie. What? When when we're watching it now, every time that it went to that well, and it goes to that a lot, I was just this like, movie uh, could have easily been twenty or thirty minutes shorter. Yeah, I was like, okay, I'm gonna look up the quotes now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I understand that there's it's not like the Shakespeare fan community is something to laugh at. They 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 they're bigger they, than me. Yeah, I was about <laughs> to say they they outnumber us. Yeah, so they I'm sure that's a smart movie, a smart move from the movie to cater to them. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to make a movie about Shakespeare, they might as well make it as Shakespearean as you can. And yeah. so and all the again, Shakespeare references. If you do that also, it's not going to hurt your chances with the, <laughs> the award givers. Um, yeah, I thought the acting was good. I wasn't kidding. Where like Colin Firth is a bad guy is just amazing because he's the kind of guy, he just seems to me, at least in his acting, is able to have a sense of humor about himself and the way he carries himself, specifically in like his bad guy roles and shit. So... I mean, yeah, there's no shortage of acting or actors in this movie. Uh, we covered Affleck being out of place. It, it's, it just, it doesn't look right. It doesn't, the only thing, I think the thing that redeems it a little bit is that his character is so much fun. Because yeah. I like that he's the big actor that, again, gets tricked by Shakespeare into thinking that the play is about him. Mm-hmm. And instead, he's a character that gets killed halfway through mm-hmm. and doesn't come in at all during the first act and uh tom wilkinson the his arc is phenomenal yes. of, like the he demands to have a part but only gets the little part but then like just fucking nails it like spends so much time obsessing and memorizing it and um jeffrey rush i mean cat's out of the bag he's a good actor <laughs> uh 
I looked up. I can't remember John Madden. I'm gonna have to look it back up now. Anything else that he did that I was? Oh, I know with. what his follow up was because that trailer was everywhere. Um, did after it say Shakespeare from the Love? director of Shakespeare in Love. Yes, of course. Uh, and I never watched the movie, even though I said I should watch it because it's from the Oscar winner. Uh, but I couldn't bring myself to it. Do you remember seeing the trailer for Captain Corelli's Mandolin? No. Nicholas Cage playing an Italian, hamming it up. With Penelope Cruz. With Penelope Cruz. Maybe he's not Italian. Maybe he's uh, an American. In a bippity boo boo. <laughs> the trailer has a scene where he's on his knees singing, I think. I don't know. It's, it looks terrible. Someday I'll watch it because, you know, it's Nicholas Cage. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, don't get me wrong. And especially coming from a place of, uh, yeah, 28%. The writer, the big other thing he did was Cutthroat Island. I know I've mentioned that about seven times now. Um, but all things considered, and then the rest of this dude's career, John Madden, it definitely seemed like this was the sum of its parts and the um, the actors involved. And, I mean, the follow-up was obviously a studio being behind it. But the actual bell-to-bell movie, I think, is just kind of a perfect storm of... Um, you have a Shakespearean type director. It looks like he fell into trouble when he started trying to make like Americanized movies or things like that. But obviously, uh, a cast of people that have respect for the source material, uh, two hungry leads, yeah, and you know a, a really good script. So it's, it shouldn't really be a surprise to anybody that what resulted from it was something good. Was a good movie. Yeah. I, again, like, um, and it's not just my usual Mattis. It was over ninety minutes, so I don't like it. It's the Mattis <laughs> rule, as Reed says. But um, it was it, it could have been shorter, easily, because, like you said, imagine if it was. But then again, that's just me being selfish. To me, it would have worked better if a lot of the, those montages were cut out, and it was just more meat, 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 meat of the of the film, and it would kind of gone by faster. But like you said, there's probably people that fucking lived for like those right, montages. That's what makes a movie yeah. for them. Uh, which I mean, that's so fine. I guess that should speak to the overall um, quality of this. In that it's not made for you or I at all, but we're still just like, yeah, it was a good movie. Yeah, I had fun. Yeah. I I enjoyed all the behind the scenes theatrical stuff. It, it was it was funny. It it had I think the emotional moments land. At the end, I loved the ending. I remember that. I mean, I remember beat by beat because I haven't seen this movie that many times. But I remember the ending. I remember that she still goes away at the end, mm-hmm. and that's. And you know me. Really good. I live for that shit. Where, like, there's the <laughs> life on its side tragic ending. And, of course, that's Shakespearean in itself that it's a tragic <laughs> ending. But um, I wouldn't call this cleansing or uh, reaffirming watching this again and kind of talking about it the way we have. But, again, it's one of those things. It's so hard to, you know, like I said, I have my qualms with what this represents. But, like, that's not Gwyneth Paltrow's fault. That's not Joseph Fine's fault. It's not even John Madden's fault or, like, you know, anyone in the movie. It's, he did his job. He did. They all did. Well. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's why I go to bad for it. Not that it comes up that often anymore, right? But, you're just like, come to think of it, it's only you that ever brings it up, Alex. <laughs> well, no. It, the way it comes up is always when people, if we're talking about Saving Private Ryan, and then somebody will start talking shit about Shakespeare in Love because in its very particular way, they're – it's funny they're, that they're, they're married. Right. Yeah. You can't talk about one without the other at some point. It, yeah. it, it comes up eventually. So then I have to say, but it's not a bad movie. It just didn't deserve. It was not the best movie of that year. No. And it's definitely not better than Saving Private Ryan. 
but it's still a good time. Yeah. Unless you're just not a, you know into period pieces and and it really doesn't age that bad. Like the really heavy 90s tropes aren't aren't that apparent. And there's there's good comedy in it. And it's not just shoehorned in there for the sake of it. So so are boobies. Yeah, that that's not good. <laughs> the uh Burbage, uh with his Rosaline and she's just continuing to write him. He's like, "Madam, would you cease?" <laughs> Something along those lines, and it that really tickled me. She's been plucked. I think we just found that funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, uh, Colin first reaction to that, and honestly, his reaction throughout the movie, because he gets a lot of, of play as far as reaction shots. It's fucking Darkwing Duck looking over his shoulder reactions. <laughs> well, there's that scene when, uh, when the Queen is, I guess, evaluating Winnet Paltrow, and they have their back and forth about theater, and Colin Firth keeps interjecting, kind of apologizing for Gwyneth Paltrow's boldness, mm-hmm. and the queen just keeps shutting him up, and she keeps cutting into him, and the entire court is laughing. That's, to me, one of Firth's finest moments in the movie, because mm-hmm. he he's playing an asshole through the entire movie, but here, he's just cowering. Yeah. So that, that makes it great. Yeah, him running out of the church. I, I did. I was like, why is no one finding this weird that he's doing this? Oh, he does it all the time. Um, yeah, so that was Shakespeare falling in love. and uh, <laughs> That was the alternate title. Yeah. I mean. And then Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg goes, uh, not Zuckerberg, Timberlake goes, lose the falling. <laughs> Shakespeare in love, much cleaner. Uh yeah, ninety two percent. I mean, it, it's it's a dead center B, I guess. If I was giving it a letter grade, yeah, I think three and a half right now. Honestly, I would have said four before just for memory. I had forgotten about those sequences in the movie where I just tune out, mm-hmm. and there's quite a lot of it. So as we were watching it tonight, I was I was just remembering. Oh yeah, that's right. That's what I didn't like about the movie because. Usually what I think of is the last 20 minutes, yeah. the play itself, and how good that ending is. So that makes me think of a four-star movie. But really, I think it's more like three and a half. And Could be four uh, in a good day. One of the things I read, just to kind of tie this, wind this down, uh, they were specific about the time frame they used. Because there's like this five or six year gap uh, where really no one knows what Shakespeare was doing. So they like made it during that time. So like, you know, historians and shit couldn't be like, no, that's not right. Which I thought was a pretty clever. That's a that's a pro wrestling move right there, man. That's not right. Ben Affleck was never <laughs> Queen Elizabeth's times. I just saw him in Armageddon. <laughs> um, sound argument on that one. <laughs> yeah, but again, this is like the whole crux of all this. Even when we're talking about this in Saving Private Ryan, I mean, you can't trying to view those movies through the same lens. You're not going to get as many laughs out of Saving Private Ryan as you do this. <laughs> Uh, in honesty, it's probably been five or so years since I've watched that, and it's probably going to make me go back and revisit it because I do remember that movie being kind of rough, but really good. And then Tom Hanks, Mark, I'll watch anything he does twice, except for Larry Crown. <laughs> uh, okay, so that was Shakespeare in Love. That was uh, episode seventy-seven of the Contrarians. We're going to continue on our award season arc uh, for the next episodes taking us clear up through award season. We're doing the up-down effect. Uh, so next up will be a Razzie uh, Best Picture winner. 
or worst picture. Excuse me. Uh, are we doing Star Wars or Star Trek next? Star Trek Five. Uh, oh God, what was the subtitle? I think it's. Is it the undiscovered country, the undiscovered planet, the final frontier? It might be the final frontier. I don't know. It's a bad one. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. I-, I haven't seen it forever. I remember watching it when I was a kid and enjoying it. So this should be interesting. Yeah. It's the Enterprise. The Enterprise. Oh, it's directed by William Shatner. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> We're in for quite the treat. Uh, winding down, as we always do, uh, heading into our plug section. First and foremost, we want to thank the Festive Years for providing our opening and closing tracks. Our opening is Last Stand, closing summer of 99. Check them out online, Bandcamp, iTunes, all that good stuff. Uh, Hans Rothgeiser is the man responsible for our logo. He's great. He has a podcast called Nacion Combi. So you can contact him to tell him nice things about his podcast if you speak Spanish, because it's a podcast in Spanish about Peruvian stuff. Uh, Or you can contact him because you want a logo, or maybe you want comics. He draws comics. Uh, He's on Twitter at Mildemonios, M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. You can also email him at mildemonios at hotmail.com. And yeah, he's great. So for my plug this week, uh, it's been the talk of the town, and I'm only I'm one of two, so I'm in the midst of the arc of the... Motherfucker, you're stealing my plug. That's oh, right. okay, well, we can launch the conversation <laughs> here. Uh, obviously, the ill-fated Firefest has produced two documentaries, uh, one on Hulu, one on Netflix. I haven't watched the Netflix one yet. It is... Um, you've seen both of them, correct? Yes. Okay, so Fire Fraud on Hulu... References the marketing company, Fuck Jerry, the uh-huh. or Instagram, whatever. The, I don't that that shit made me infuriated that I'm considered a millennial because it's like, <laughs> you know how much I tweet. I love Twitter and I love the internet and video games and all that shit. But like, hearing people talk about like you know influencers and shit like that, it just <laughs> yeah, it makes me dry heave. And it's like I'm one of those people too that uh, I'm a lazy a lot of times get by with lowest effort given. But like when I watch some of those people, I'm like, I feel like a hard worker. Like (laughs) I feel like my work ethic is through the roof. So in a lot of ways that was kind of reaffirming, but to the point that fuck Jerry company, they're the ones that made the Netflix documentary when they heard the Hulu one was coming out. I don't think that you can tell because I watch, I watched the Netflix one first. Okay. And uh, yeah, I didn't find out that it was from the, fuck jerry guys until i watched the hulu one because mm-hmm. at the end of hulu they're like dude do you know that fuck jerry's pros in their own documentary yeah. and the guy goes okay and i think that guy's in the netflix one too so mm-hmm. uh there's a lot of crossover like I-, I was telling alex when we were talking about it earlier i think that you only need to watch one uh to get really all of it get the and, gist yeah to get the gist and uh and if you're only going to watch one then watch the netflix one because i think it's better made but uh it was <laughs> The Hulu one does, and I was going to say, I can't imagine there really being spoiling on Netflix, so say what you'd like, but the Hulu one, the one I popped hardest for was him, uh, I forget the gentleman's name who organized it, but him proposing that he had all the villas, but he lost a box of keys that had the... uh, It's... um, It was one of those things when it happened, I didn't know about, because I... It made me realize as much as I think I'm in a social media bubble, I'm not because I didn't remember hearing anything about that until it went wrong. Like I same, yeah, I remember the same thing. It's in so I knew nothing about it until that, but then going back and researching and like watching that and then seeing all the shit people were being fed. One, the amount of money people were spending on it was asinine, and then two, like people thinking this was a real feasible thing was 
and, and obviously that's what the documentary tackles. Yeah, the um, I think that the I, I can't be completely impartial because, of course, which documentary you watch first probably affects how you feel. The the one you watch second is always gonna feel like tombstone like wider leftovers exactly. Yeah, which one has Kevin Costner? Okay, that one's the best. One. <laughs> uh, but to me, I think it's a Netflix one that really makes the case for it being. Uh, okay, so this the point of this is that it exposes how social media, how empty the whole social media slash uh, influencers thing is. Right. Well, you know when you idolize these people that really have nothing going for them other than they have a whole bunch of followers mm-hmm. uh you believe them you follow them whatever then you are liable to just be sold anything you're yeah. sold like an empty package and you pay millions for them uh or thousands whatever uh and that's great i i don't think that the either of the documentaries goes uh after that point as hard as they could maybe uh because it's they're more interested in entertaining mm-hmm. But I can pick that up. The reason I love it is just the fact that I'm human and I just enjoyed so much seeing this whole thing fall apart. Oh, absolutely. Because save for the locals, the locals got screwed. Mm-hmm. But people like McFarland and Ja Rule and all those assholes surrounding them, they – I couldn't wait to see them fail. I knew that it was a failed venture. Because I remember that from when it actually happened. So the main reason I watched the movie was to see these assholes fail. And it delivers. It's it's very comforting seeing people that are so uh, brazen and um, eager to show that they that they're smarter than you fall on their face. Yes. And they're, they're just terrible people. I'm sorry. It's not even that they're bad business people. They're just it's. Obviously, it's very candid uh, filmmaking that, you know, they just they let cameras record him and then they let that footage be used uh, yeah. documentary. And I'm sure that if I had a camera crew follow me 24 seven, you would catch me saying things that maybe don't pay me at my best. Yeah. But there's a lot of it for it to not for it not to be uh, an accurate representation of who they are. I was about to say, there's only so much you can say is taken out of context. Right. Yeah. No, this is just. It's not just that, oh, well, you happen to be drunk with your buddies at this point. This mm-hmm. is you all the time. Yeah. And I don't feel bad for you. I relish the fact that you fell on your face and you're going to prison and your buddies are having trouble getting work and whatever. Because – So you get for using people. Not not even like – so the people that bought tickets, they duped. But like up until that, they just used and stepped on so many people to get to that point. Yeah. So. Do you see the the whole thing about the – Oh, I think I was telling you about it. The the GoFundMe campaign for the lady that was a mm-hmm. caterer. I mean, that's great, right? The, maybe the best thing to come out out of the, the documentaries, besides my selfish enjoyment of those yeah. guys going to prison and getting in trouble, is the fact that it drew attention to all the people, the honest working people that got screwed out of jobs and money and time by these guys. And so there's this GoFundMe campaign that suddenly raised a whole bunch of money for that lady and hopefully there's more to come. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, and I do love uh, – I, I loved the thing about, like, people that were tweeting from it. They were getting cease and desist letters immediately <laughs> or, like, notifications. Man, uh, they're the worst. The, the, the I, I know you see a lot of it in the Hulu documentary, too, that the, just the way that they handle that. The, the guy that's in charge of the marketing that sent them um, – when they're talking about the commercial they shot and how he sent, like, a 10-page email – 
about what the score should be like. Mm -hmm. And it's just all this pretentious bullshit that goes on forever. Yeah. That's not criminal behavior. That's not, I shouldn't take anybody to task over that. But I'm sorry, you're an asshole and you're a douchebag. Yeah. I am glad that you're being ridiculed now. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And maybe, I mean, this is something I've been struggling with and this is getting way too existential, but like a. I want an island. (laughs) uh, I'm like a huge animal lover, but I, I still eat meat, but still like wild animals in their habitat and like in the hulu one it was showing them like pouring beer on like the fucking pigs, the pigs and, yeah, and i was yeah, like that's... dude i love beer and i love animals but don't mix the two come on you have some fucking common courtesy that's fucking dickhead uh the hulu one i had to look it up because i always forget the name of the group but first thing i did this morning when i woke up because i fell asleep after i watched last night was uh the hulu ends with uh um build me up buttercup by the foundations right i, I cranked that very loud this morning when i woke up <laughs> Always reminds me of something about Mary at the end. Yeah, I was about to say, is there something about Mary yeah. song? That's right. Uh, but yeah. And then did I talk about my VGA cord that I got for my Dreamcast? Have I talked about that on here yet? No, but actually I should ask you about Magic City because that was uh, oh, your last. I'm a few more episodes into it. There's one where Danny Houston is like just naked swimming and he's just you like, see... God damn. <laughs> On a scale of one to Fossbender, he's rocking in like a solid seven. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's getting crazier and crazier. It's one of those things of like, I, I use the phrase junk food television pretty fittingly for that. Um, I can't, it, it, where it's at right now, it, I can't watch episodes back to back. So I'm kind of watching one a week. So, uh, But I think I've only got one or two episodes left in the first season. So once I finish that, I'll give a full recap of uh, feelings on that. Um, but what's this cable? I, I'm I've made the poor decision of uh, one of the things I want to get into this year is to kind of take effort and money away from other things that I do. Um, uh, retro gaming, so I'm like super into Dreamcast. Like, and my goal is to like really build my Dreamcast collection. And man, I could do a whole episode just talking about that console. Uh, anyway, that I got a cable for it. It's basically what I found. The reason I bring it up is just because. So basically Sega intended for that system like their idea 9899 and it's applicable to this cuz that's when the movie came out that's why I brought it up. But they had envisioned HD TVs before they were released so that console was supposed to be played on HD TVs. Um and so they they're still third party companies that manufacture these VGA cables for them. And the problem is HD TVs have passed that by and a lot of them don't have VGA ports anymore. Fortunately I've got one that's like 5 years old five or six years old that still has one. And so uh, I got it. And so basically it's converted my Dreamcast to HD. And it's just, I was like sitting in my room by myself at like one in the morning on like a Friday when I got it. And I got home late from wherever I was and I hooked it up and I was just like in my room, like a never ending story. Just, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, so it looks, it looks good. It looks better than it did before. And it looks incredible. Yeah. Because I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this. Let's say that you hook up your Super Nintendo right now to your biggest TV. Mm-hmm. It looks like shit. Just using the VA cables and stuff? or um, yeah. Using anything, really. I, I don't think that... I forget what the, the technical name of that is, so don't crucify me. But the basically you have the, the red, white, and yellow... Yeah, they're the RCA cables. Mm-hmm. RCA, thank yeah. you. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and then it stretches it. But basically what this VGA cable does for the Dreamcast was it gets the intended optimum video quality out of it. Uh, converts it back to 4.3, 
and like sharpens everything and like the sound coming out it's better and whatnot it's it's really weird because yeah all other consoles from that era like even the ps2 if you hook it up to like a modern tv it kind of looks like shit so it, it remasters your game basically yeah and but the craziest part is is like there's companies that make those uh make like for uh super nintendo there's a company that makes an hdmi converter for it it's like 60 bucks but like um but it still looks like it, it sharpens nintendo. it and makes oh it does but yeah it doesn't look like stretched and all that but point of that is is like that was all stuff people figured out how to make originally like sega intended this to be the use of it and it's like and then fucking harvey weinstein had to ruin things for them. <laughs> Harvey Weinstein came along and said he gave a PS2 to everyone in the academy. You're gonna play this and you're gonna like it. All uh, those screeners of I don't know what the fuck is a place to uh, PlayStation the, the Two game. PS2 original release. It would have been like Madden 2000 SSX. Oh, Madden 2000 because that ties in perfectly with. Oh goddamn! I didn't <laughs> you, even think of that. You get the Madden two two punch. Fucking of, a, pal. Shakespeare in Love and Madden 2000 all together. Your screener. It's mail. like a, it's the VHS and then the PS2 game like bundled in. So I, I preface this, or I say this, uh, I go through this whole diatribe to preface that uh, over the next year of episodes, there may be uh, reoccurring check-ins on my Dreamcast collection and <laughs> what, what I've come across and what's new with it. So uh. <laughs> it's a very dumb, lucrative, uh, lucrative, uh, expensive uh, potential new hobby I've picked up. So, Well, oh, you're funneling. You're not adding more money correct you're funneling money yes and it's already like my funds are already hilariously different than they have been the past three years because i'm not going to wrestlemania so it's like it's going to be weird when there's like an extra twenty five hundred dollars in my bank account (laughs) but i gotta be smart as i'm told as an adult you put that into savings yes so you know you own a home you're married oh god Everybody's like, "What's what's it like to be married? It's a change your life." No, it's the same. You know what changes your life? A mortgage. <laughs> that really. No, that's not true. You know what marriage? This is just completely going into personal life. It has nothing to do with Shakespeare in Love, other than I love my wife, I guess. But yeah, no, we'll, we'll figure out a way we'll to bring it back around. Okay, so the the thing about being married is just that I can't die anymore. Before, <laughs> I was like, you know what? In the end. As long as I outlive my mother, I'm cool. Because mm-hmm. then, you know, if I die, it's like I take my debts to the grave with me, and it'll be a sad occasion for those who outlive me. But overall, it's just I'm not responsibility-wise. I'm in the clear. Yeah, I can't do that now. <laughs> if if I die, then it's just my wife has to take care of my shit, and I can't do that. So I need to at least outlive my wife, who's younger than me. <laughs> so. <laughs> So that's that's a rough one. Now that's really the big change. So Julio will be sure not to drink the poison. <laughs> Excellent. He will not make the mistake that Romeo did. No, definitely not. And but if I do drink the poison, then my wife's definitely stabbing herself because <laughs> because I'm that wonderful. <laughs> or it's uh, Rosaline just inheriting all those leftovers, as as we'll say. Um, so that was Shakespeare in Love. That was a Best Picture winner for. I'm not even gonna say for better or for worse. For worse, it was a. For worse, it was a Best Picture winner, but it wasn't a bad movie. There we go. Yeah, that's that's such a complex take. 
And that's the real talk kind of shit. That that's the here. that's gonna be the quote of the episode. And people will be like, "What the fuck? I gotta listen to this now." All right, awesome. Well, that is gonna wrap it up for this episode. That's gonna do it for us here on the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. And for the next episode, next time we see you, we will prosper. <laughs> that's some of